0: So, that's what I mean by snap, okay? And and I want us all to think about when the last time was that we experienced that in our own lives. Now, admittedly, maybe the last time you experienced that was with the person you're sitting beside, or maybe the person sitting beside you last experienced that with you, and there's some elbow nudging going on. If that's the case with you, then uh, just remember at the end of our services, we do offer prayer and you might want to consider that uh, at the end of this morning. But, uh, I want us to consider that, um, you know, not just to have some fun, I, I would encourage all of our life groups uh, this week to open, open up with an icebreaker question along those lines. When was the last time that you uh, experienced, or maybe it was yourself, uh, witnessed uh, somebody snap? Uh, because the, the question behind the question is what do you learn when you experience someone in that state? What do you, what do you learn about them other than, you know, kind of the fact that they've got past the the tipping point and and what they're like in that in that condition. What is it that you learn? Because I think one of the key things that you learn when you see someone snap is what they ultimately care about enough to get to that place. You know when a person ultimately snaps they're revealing what they care about most deeply and most passionately to react most fully and most authentically aren't they? And and I say all that because in, in this section Of this part of the biography of Jesus written by Matthew devoted to helping Matthew's uh, original readers understand better who this Jesus is. Matthew records an episode of a story when he and his disciples actually witnessed Jesus himself snap. You might not realize that from time to time, this actually happened, even to Jesus. And we're going to have some fun today, because in Matthew chapter 15, that's exactly what happened. So uh, if you can turn there, if you brought a Bible, or if you have a a portable device with a Bible app, you'll get more out of this if you follow along. We're going to stay in Matthew 15 the entire time, so you can turn there and and read along with me. Uh, We're starting in verse 1, where it says there, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Okay, we've talked a number of times about these characters called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. They, they, they were basically the, the educated scholars and experts in the Jewish law that taught and kind of administered. They were kind of like the spiritual police uh, of Jesus' day in Jewish culture. And notice here that it says that these particular Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Okay, kind of from the ultimate home base or headquarters. So these just weren't any old Pharisees or teachers of the law. These were like the head office brass, the real kind of senior spiritual elite who were coming to pay some attention to Jesus in this episode. And it says in verse two that these Pharisees asked Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do they break the tradition of the elders? That's an important term for us to understand. Uh, Mike has explained this to us before, that in Jewish culture in the first century, there were actually two kinds of laws that they tried to adhere to. There was what was called the written law, which was the direct commands and, and prophecies from God. Basically, the Old Testament of our Bible today. There was the direct kind of written law. And then there was a second law called the oral law or the oral tradition that people had developed over time as extensions and applications and, you know, supplementary laws to the written law. And the idea was that in creating this second set of laws, this kind of outer boundary, if you obeyed and adhered to the outer boundary, then you most certainly would be in no danger of violating the inner boundary, the, the written law. If you ascribed to the outer law, you would be obedient to the inner law. And so it's, it's this outer law, this, this, this oral tradition that the disciples are, are, are being uh, challenged here, that Jesus is being challenged here on uh, in breaking. In breaking the tradition of the elders, they're referring to that oral law. And specifically... In verse two, they're referring to, to one specific idea in that oral law, the back half of verse two says this. It says, Jesus, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, I have no idea how the hygiene habits of Jesus' disciples made news all the way back to Jerusalem and invoked the senior executive Pharisees and teachers of the law to come back and and inquire on this. But to understand at least why this was a big deal to them, uh, you basically need to understand three things about this Jewish practice uh, of hand washing. First of all, you need to understand Where the idea originated because it didn't originate in the tradition of the elders in this oral law. It actually originated in the written law in the original commands of God. But in those commands of God and you can look at you could look at this yourself in your spare time in in the Old Testament if you're interested. Um, Originally these, these cleanliness kind of purification laws applied mostly to priests or to people who were entering and active in the Jewish temple. See, back then, the Jewish temple was understood to be the place where heaven and earth kind of integrated, where they where they overlapped. And the temple was where God's presence was understood to reside. And so because of that, because that's where God's presence resided, purification and cleanliness mattered as kind of symbolic of being fit to interact with the presence of God. And so there were all kinds of ritualistic ceremonies and, and cleanliness and, and you were expected to be free from dirt and disease and rash and all those sort of things. And there were all kinds of laws that that existed in the written law along those lines. So number one, they originated in the written law. Number two, you can understand then how they, how they were extrapolated into the oral law Into the tradition of the elders. Because people in that day would have understood. That if this is the way you're supposed to behave in the presence of God. If this is the way that you're supposed to behave. In the place where heaven and earth overlap. If we want to experience the presence of God in other places. And if we want to be fit for God. And want heaven and earth to overlap in other places. Well then we should behave that way. All the time. And so in the written law, there were all kinds of extensions and extrapolations of these originally intended to be temple, you know, primary or temple exclusive uh, purification and cleanliness rituals. And then number three, you need to understand kind of the spiritual logic sequence that. Uh, the Pharisees and the teachers and the Jews understood in the idea of hand-washing because what they were really believing was that you needed to keep your hands clean because when you touched your food, if your hands were dirty, then it contaminated your food. And if you ate contaminated food, then your mouth was contaminated. Or worse, if you ingested contaminated food, then your insides were contaminated and then you were like kind of spiritually unclean because your unclean hands made your food unclean and then you kind of ingested it and now you as a person were unclean. And now you as a person were unfit for God. And so appreciate that that's ultimately what these Pharisees and teachers of the law, these senior brass of the religious establishment were confronting Jesus about. They were kind of insinuating that perhaps Jesus was unaware that his disciples were unclean now and were unfit for God. And that my friends, um, is what triggered Jesus to snap. Read along with me in verse 3. Where it says there, Jesus replied. And why do you break the command of God. For the sake of your tradition. For God said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used. To help their father or mother is devoted to God. To God that they're not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And Jesus instead called the crowd to him. And he said to them, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth That's what defiles them. In a Dr. Leo Marvin kind of move, Jesus basically looks at the senior level religious leaders of his day and says, get out. And turns his back on them and addresses the crowds instead. And we need to understand a few things about Jesus' rant to really understand the, the point that he's trying to make. Um, there's a lot of commentary here about honoring your father and mother. What, what Jesus is doing, having been accused of being unfit for God because his disciples are breaking this oral tradition, he's actually citing a law in the written tradition. And not just any old law. He's citing one of the ten commandments. Commandment number five, to honor your father and mother. And what he's saying is that these Pharisees and teachers of the law are actually in violation, not of the oral law, but in the written law. And worse, they're in violation of the written law because of misinterpretation or misapplication of their oral law. Their traditions, he says, nullify the word of God. And we need to understand a little bit about how their traditions did that, because one of the laws that... Existed in their, their uh, oral tradition. Was what was referred to as Corbin Law. It was called Corbin Law. And what Corbin Law said. Was that if you wanted to. You could devote all of your wealth. And all of your assets. And all of your financial resources. To God. To the temple. So that the temple would receive all of those assets when you died. But through Corbin law, by devoting everything that you had to the temple, only you had access to it while you were on earth. You could still leverage those resources for you, but because you devoted them, you'd kind of of pre-willed them or bequeathed your estate to the temple. Because it now belonged to the temple in that sense and not you, it wasn't available for any other use. You see where I'm going with this? What Jews would do in Jesus' day is that they would voluntarily dedicate all of their wealth and all of their assets and their estate to the temple, knowing that so long as they were alive, they could use whatever they needed to use. But it gave them an excuse to not need to devote money to anything or to anybody else, even to taking care of their parents. So in their custom, when they were to look after their parents as they were aging, they could say, sorry, mom and dad, Corbin law says that I, I can't give you any of my money. I've already devoted it to God. And by devoting it to God, they were in direct violation of God's law. Now, just a little bit of a time out here because some of us, you know, we, we, we care for our parents, and, and this morning, my, my mom and dad will be watching this this message online uh, at their uh, winter house in, in Mexico, and I just want to let them know, mom and dad, um, happy birthday, dad, by the way, um, if someone happens to contact you about some research that I was doing about Corbin law, and whether that still applied in 21st century North America, that is entirely coincidental and accidental. I, I, I was only doing research for this message, I, there in no way was I trying to see if if i could use that loophole in 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 our relationship. Don't worry, have a great time. We'll 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 see you later. You understand what Jesus is upset about. They were using this oral tradition as a loophole to live out the commandments of God. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're justifying their greed according to You know, these traditions of the elders, they were kind of violating God's law according to their own greed and manipulating what the scripture scripture said. Aside from being greedy, Jesus is probably upset that they're also lying to them. We didn't talk about this, but it's kind of implied in the text that when when the Pharisees originally approached Jesus and said, why do your disciples do this? It was probably a backhanded and passive aggressive way of asking why he doesn't do this. They were accusing him, not his disciples. But they, you know, they weren't prepared to look him in the eye and, and accuse him of that. And so, and so Jesus denounces them. And he calls them hypocrites. And he declares that you know their prophecy fulfilled of, of spiritual ineptitude. And he turns his back on them and addresses the crowd instead. And he says that what these people, even though they're the spiritual elites of the day, what these people are teaching you about the way that a life with God works, that it goes from the outside to affect your inside is exactly the opposite of the way that it really works with God. Because with God, it starts in the heart and works from the inside out. Now, this whole time, Jesus' disciples have been witnessing this episode. They've been watching the Pharisees come, and they've witnessed Jesus' snap. And it's only in uh, verse 13, or verse 12 rather, that Matthew weaves them back into the story when it says this. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? (laughs) Stop and think about that for a second. Isn't that a funny question for his disciples to ask at that point? Jesus has just looked at the spiritual elite of his day, He's snapped on them. He's denounced them. He's called them hypocrites. He said that their prophecy fulfilled because their spiritual ineptitude. And he's turned their back on them. And they're still wondering whether Jesus is aware that he's offended them. I'm sure babies were crying out of response to the shock of, of Jesus' tone in this uncharacteristic kind of rebuttal. Why were they asking this question? What were they confused by? Right? It's interesting. In the language of uh, their question, they, they want to know whether Jesus realizes that the Pharisees were offended. The, the word offended is actually the, the Greek word scandalizo, meaning scandalized. Do you know that, that they've been scandalized by what you've said? And I wonder whether the reason they're asking Jesus this question is not so much because they're concerned about the impact on the Pharisees, but more because they're concerned about the impact on themselves. That it's not so much the Pharisees that have been scandalized, but then the shock and awe of real-time processing what just happened. They're feeling scandalized themselves. And it's not so much the Pharisees faith world that's been rocked. It's how they've understood faith to work that's actually been shattered in the, in the process. I say that because of the way the conversation continues to unfold. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says, Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. And Jesus says, leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus says, leave them. Which, don't you think is kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say to these disciples? These are people we know who've already left land and houses and jobs and families in order to become full-time nomadic apprentices of Jesus himself. They've already left everything to follow Jesus. What is it that Jesus feels they need to leave Today, Jesus feels they need to leave them in the sense that they need to leave their way of thinking. That he believes they still possess. Jesus understands that his disciples still think about faith in that outside-in kind of way that's consistent with the Jewish tradition and with the, the religion and the teaching of the Pharisees And the teachers of Jewish law. He says to leave them because he's trying to get them to leave that mindset. And to look at faith and the way life works with God very differently. And you know what? The text would say that Jesus was right. Because Matthew chapter 15 verse 15 has the disciples response. Where it says there that Peter said, Jesus, explain this parable to us. They don't get it they don't get it. And and to be clear, it wasn't hard to get. All Jesus did when he turned to the crowd is said, it's not what goes inside you that defiles you. It's what comes outside of you and what comes from the heart, right? It's not on the outside in, it's on the inside out. It it was a very clear message that Jesus was teaching. But because of the, the strength of the mental model and the worldview and the paradigm that the The disciples of Jesus still possessed when it came to how a life with God works. They still didn't understand it and they needed him to clarify it more. And so he does. In verse 16, Jesus says, are you still so dull? Again, Matthew's retelling of the story affirms that it's about them not getting it. Then Jesus asked them, don't you see, don't you get that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of a person's mouth, they come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile them. Jesus spends a little more time appreciating that they're not getting this to try to walk them through this very fundamental principle of how a life with God works. And he does that, first of all, by expanding the conversation beyond his conversation with the Pharisees that was only about the written commandments of God and specifically about one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number five. And he expands it by citing some of the other of the Ten Commandments. Specifically, he lists six through nine. He talks in in uh, verse 16 and 17, and he talks about murder and and adultery and, uh, and stealing and... Uh, 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 false testimony, bearing false witness. Those were commandments six through nine in in the 10 commandments. And and what he's doing is not making it more specific to just those four. What he's doing in applying it to other commandments is making a broader, generalized statement about how life with God works. This is not just the way God works when it comes to honoring your, your parents. This is the way God works when it comes to life. He's generalizing it for them. And then in generalizing it for them, he's saying it, it, It's not what happens on the outside that makes you right or wrong with God. In fact, in in the original language, when when he talks about the things that enter into the mouth, going into the stomach and then out of the body, in the original language, it says that they, they, they actually excrete into the latrine. What he's saying as kind of a play on words is that that outside in approach to faith ends up nowhere but the crapper. That's what he's saying to them. But on the contrary, what God cares about is what happens in people's hearts. Because it's what people's what's in people's hearts that corrupt their relationship with God. It's what's in people's hearts. That's what God wants to change. It's in people's hearts that God can start to work. And from the inside out beginning in the heart, people can begin to live and experience life the way that God originally intended. That's what Jesus is trying to do to these disciples is to get them to abandon this outside-in understanding of faith and appreciate that the heart of the matter with God is ultimately a matter of the heart. Gang, understand that this passage in Matthew chapter 15 is not a story retold by Matthew of Pharisees and Jesus. This is a story told by Matthew of would-be followers of Jesus and Jesus. And it's a story about a bunch of followers who just flatly didn't get how a life with God works. Matthew's goal in retelling it is to share the, the journey and the adventure of him and his friends finally, hopefully, getting it in hopes that his readers and hearers in the future would start to get it themselves and be able to abandon a more commonly understood outside-in approach to faith for the inside-out heart of the matter, which to God is ultimately a matter of the heart. Matthew's goal in this section of text is for people in understanding who Jesus is to really get how a life with God works. So the question for us today is, do we? Do we really get The difference between an outside-in approach to faith and the inside-out, from-the-heart way of life that God wants us to experience. Do we understand, more specific to the language we tend to use around here, do we understand the drastic and fundamental difference between religion and a relationship with God? See, religion, we've talked about this a number of times, but We'll go there again just to be abundantly clear. Religion is that set of external activities and practices and experiences that people do for the sake of spirituality intended to be right with God. And, you know, appreciate there's nothing wrong with the experiences per se. What turns those experiences into religion is when those experiences are seen as the main thing. As those, when those experiences are under, understood to be what matters. So when people say, oh, you're a follower of Jesus, that means you go to church right? You participate in services. You participate in programs. You're part of a life group. You give money. You serve the marginalized. You do external things. They're defining what ultimately matters the most in terms of those externals and falsely assuming that if you get the externals right, they'll take care of the internal religion is the understanding that by focusing on the externals and focusing on the outward behaviors, you make yourself right with God on the inside. You make yourself fit for God. But we know through Jesus, that's not the way God works. That God wants to look deep into our hearts and appreciate that all of us are fallen and broken, are in desperate need of his forgiveness and love. And through Jesus and his work on the cross and in dying and rising again, he can enter in, he can wash that sin away and begin by his living spirit as he resides within us, To transform us from the inside out. And as we bring our heart to God. And as we continue to relate to God. Focusing on our heart. And seeking to align our heart more closely with his heart. Through the transforming power of a risen Jesus. He can grow and shape and mold our heart to be more like his. To grow our capacity to love. To increase our experiences of joy. To expand our capacity for peace. To extend our degrees of patience. And to build and grow and transform us into kinder, gentler, more faithful, you know, more self-controlled people. In the way that the New Testament describes as the fruit of God's spirit. The outward manifestations of the Spirit of God working within us because the way that God works is from the inside out, not the way religion works from the outside in. And the question Matthew is asking us to consider today, to reflect on our own, to talk about his life groups this week, is whether we have fully understood the difference in those two approaches and whether we have abandoned an approach of faith defined as religion and embraced instead an inside out approach of authentically relating to God. We called this morning repenting of religion, literally, turning away from religion because what God wants you and I to consider is whether we have fully rejected and fully abandoned an outside in approach to faith in favor of the inside out heart focused way in which God wants to work in you and me as we wrap up I want to invite the band to come up and to lead us in some final songs and as they do um Just to make some comments about the the first song that they're going to lead us in as a bit of a response. It's kind of an oldie, but hopefully a goodie um, that was written in the early 1990s. Uh, See, back then there was uh, a church in uh, Britain that was wrestling with this very issue that was doing all kinds of great services and great activities, but feeling like as a church community, they were still too fixated and too focused and making too much of a priority on the externals at the expense of their hearts. And so this church, because they believed that so strongly and felt like there was no way that they could break that paradigm in their people without doing this, they actually stopped doing all of the externals for a period of time. They canceled church services. They killed all their church programs. And they essentially ceased to function as kind of an organized church in those external ways for an extended period of months. And in that time, one of the worship leaders named Matt Redman wrote a song on his reflection of what God was teaching him in that era that became a song that we sang for years that focused us on what mattered most, that focused us on issues of the heart. And um, as we go to prayer, I just pray that you know we can not only pray, but extend our prayers into this song as we honor God together with the heart of worship, focusing on the inside out way that God wants to work where the heart of the matter is ultimately a matter of our hearts. Let's pray together. Well, God, as we sing this song to you, I pray that being here in this way, gathering in this service, and singing these songs would be more than just us gathering and singing songs. Because things like gatherings and things like singing songs, as we're going to sing, are ultimately not what you desire, are not ultimately what you envision and require from us. God, we know and are reminded again today that you search much deeper within. You look through the way that things appear on the outside and look within our hearts because our hearts are ultimately what matter most to you. So I pray that we would come back to our hearts as well, that we would come back to the heart of faith in you, the heart of growing in you, the heart of what it means to follow you and serve you, and ultimately the heart of what it means in these moments to worship you. When it's all about you, Jesus, knowing, forgiving, transforming, changing, and using our hearts from the inside out. Have your way with us. Do the work in us from the inside out that you desire to do, even right now. And make this song a prayer from the bottom of all of our hearts, together as one voice. We love you and thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.